Welcome nerds. It's time to debrief you on the world of pop culture. Loading up Rockabilly track. Now applying CGI to Hayden Christiansen. Preparing updates on movies, TV, wrestling and more. ANS 5.0 activates in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're going to be breaking down episode five of Obi Wan and episode two of Miss Marvel. Plus, I'm talking the biggest stories out of the like what E3 week, as they used to call it, and we're talking a whole bunch of crazy stories from this week in wrestling. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. All right, Christian, this week we have another Apple Podcast five-star review to read. Uh, This comes from a listener named Snowy. Uh, It reads, life-changing. Might sound too weird to say this about a podcast based on entertainment, but this show will always be special to me and has actually been a life changer for it made me realize that I am in fact a nerd. Uh, It has helped me embrace that and keeps me informed on all things movies, shows, games, and although I thought I never would say it, but yes, comics. Every time I've messaged these guys, they've always responded. Keep doing what you do, fellas. Much love, Snowy F. Uh, thank you, Snowy. Uh, we definitely appreciate the kind words. If anything, this show's all about letting your nerd flag fly. I think everyone has an inner nerd waiting to come out. Uh, Snowy's a good guy. I know he's reached out to us a couple times over on Instagram looking for comic book suggestions. Uh, we love hearing from listeners, so, uh, feel free to reach out to us over at Amazing Nerd Show on all your favorite social media platforms, and we'll respond pretty quickly. Also, Snowy, if you're interested, go ahead and DM us your address, and we'll send over some show merch you know some pins stickers and whatnot uh you know and that goes for anyone else who leaves a five-star review uh and if we read it on the show uh we can send you some show swag also uh those five-star reviews really keep the show going strong and means a lot uh thanks again snowy let's get into the news every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum we're not mild-mannered reporters we're mere podcasters with opinions All right, up first, we've got casting news for the Joker sequel. Well, The Hollywood Reporter brings us an interesting update for the recently announced Joker sequel. Not only is Lady Gaga in talks to co-star as Harley Quinn, but the film may actually be a musical as well, which has had some noticeably mixed reactions online, but it's good to note that the deal hasn't actually closed, so there's no confirmation on if Lady Gaga will actually play the role. But there hasn't been any talks or denial of, you know, this film being a musical, which honestly, doesn't sound as bad as some of you may want to believe and my theory is that this is still going to be an Arkham story and I feel like you know this is going to be a twisted musical from the mind of Todd Phillips's Joker and I think that would be pretty interesting to see it's not going to be some like whimsical love story here but I do have mixed feelings on Lady Gaga just because her prior acting roles haven't been the best as I have seen her in both A Star is Born and House of Gucci and I was you know kind of far from impressed but you can't deny that she has some vocal chops as a singer no I mean I pretty much agree with everything you just said um I feel like this has the potential to actually be brilliant um I'm not a huge Lady Gaga fan by any means but I mean she could definitely sing and if they're going to, if there's going to be like a musical component to this I mean, casting wise, I feel like that makes sense. I definitely mm-hmm. feel like this is going to be taking place within like the confines of Arkham Asylum. Really, um, I could see this being like almost like a shared like 
delusion, like the title of the film actually alludes to, which we talked about last week, um, you know, between like a lot of the patients um, where, you know, these characters are like in their minds going through this like, you know, giant musical number while the nurses just look on and, you know, they're actually just kind of like flaying about. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I, I, I kind of dig the idea. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a full on musical, if there's just going to be like a couple musical numbers thrown in there. And I could also see them really like playing with Harley's origin story where she's actually a doctor on staff at Arkham. And, you know, it's more of, you know, her relationship with, you know, Joaquin Phoenix and everything and how she slowly gets corrupted you know, by him. But if people are expecting to see these guys, you know, running on the streets of Gotham and going up against Batman, like we said last week, I think, you know, they're going to be sorely, you know, disappointed. Yes. And even to that point, I feel like, you know, it's, you know, it could be Joker thinking he's manipulating Harley exactly. the entire time. It could it's... all just be in, you know, Joaquin Phoenix's mind. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I think that the title, you know, the meaning of the title, which I don't remember exactly what it is. Christian, do you know the, do you have the title in front of you? Uh, Folly Ado. Yeah, which it's like a shared, like, right, delusion? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that makes me, you know, believe that it's going to be something like between the inmates, you know, if it is mm -hmm. taking place in Arkham. And we're obviously assuming a lot here. I could totally see like, you know, he finally breaks out of Arkham and then it ends up being this huge, like, you know, musical number at the end, <laughs> like, you know, between him and like uh -huh. the cult followers that he has and everything. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. All right. Well, up next, we have villain news for the upcoming Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse film. Sony had a presentation recently that featured one of the villains from Across the Spider-Verse with the reveal of the dastardly spot. Casted in the role will be Jason Schwartzman, who's done tons of TV and film work. I mean, you might recognize him from Scott Pilgrim or heard him in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, the teleporting villain, though, won't be alone, as Sony showed off a clip with the anarchist version of the Vulture, played by Jorma Tacone, which I apologize if I said that wrong, but he's best known for his work with Andy Sandberg and like the Lonely Island stuff. He's also worked on SNL a ton. But even crazier than that, the clip had a pregnant Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, as played by Issa Rae from the hit show Insecure and Lovebirds. While I'm not the biggest Spot fan, um, I do feel like his power set will lend itself well uh, to the animation style of, mm -hmm. you know, Spider-Verse. So it should be pretty awesome to see how they play around, you know, with his powers. But I'm also wondering if, like, the Spot is kind of like the plot device for whatever the hell's, you know, going awry with, you know, the Spider-Verse, you know, knowing that his powers tap into, like, other dimensions. Yeah, I just think I always pictured him more as like a tool for another bigger villain to use in a situation like this. But I, you know, it makes sense. He's a dimensional character. Well, yeah, and that could be the case. You know, maybe a villain's using, you know, his powers mm. to exploit the multiverse in some way. I could totally see them go that route. And at this point, besides the Vulture, has there been any other villains announced? No, I don't believe so. Outside of the Vulture and Spot, I don't think they've actually said any other villains. You know, we have seen that clip where it, it seems like there's going to be some infighting, at least, between the Spider-Man as well. Yeah, and since this is a little less than a year away, I'm sure we're going to be getting more and more information, like, you know, slowly trickling out uh, as we go on. I mean, to think this was actually originally supposed to be coming out, I believe, in October. But honestly, they could take all the time they want as long as they give us, you know, something along the same caliber as the first film. 
So up next, the MCU is developing a Wonder Man series for Disney Plus with the director of Shang-Chi attached. Coming someday to Disney Plus, Hollywood Reporter claims Wonder Man is on the way to the MCU in a series of his own. The show will have Destin Daniel Cretton, director of um, Shang-Chi, along with writer Andrew Guest from Brooklyn Nine-Nine working together on the production. Uh, Cretton right now is set as executive producer, but may actually direct some episodes as well. Really, Wonder Man? Uh... This really does nothing for me. I'm not a huge Wonder Man fan. Uh, you know, in the past, he's been a big part of the Avengers in the comics, at least. Uh, you know, he, he's always been kind of a third stringer, though, in my mind. I've never really enjoyed any of his storylines. He has a big history with Vision. Uh, but I'm not going to dive into that because it's so convoluted and weird. Also, in the past, he's had a relationship with Wanda, which is even more weird if you know the history between him and Vision. <laughs> Uh, and he, uh, uh, I believe he had a, a, a relationship with, uh, Captain Marvel also. So, I mean, there's a lot of different directions they can go with the character. I'm guessing this is going to be more of a comedy, uh, with the Brooklyn Nine-Nine guy attached. Uh, and I mean, that's kind of how the character's played in the books a lot of times, you know, very comedic. Uh, you know, he's like a struggling actor, uh, slash superhero, but honestly, like all in all, like he's a character that I've never found super interesting. So I've always cringed during like his story arcs where I'm like, uh, I'm reading this to read this, but I'm just trying to get to the next issue. So, but yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe this is going to be my favorite series of all time. You know, I could be completely <laughs> wrong, but yeah, no. you never know. But perhaps they just need, you know, some victims for the upcoming events. <laughs> What, are you thinking they're just giving him a series so he can be cannon fodder later on? You get them to care about the character, and then it's more weight when he gets killed. By giving him an entire series? <laughs> Why not? There's so many other ways that are so much less expensive, Christian. I mean, I know they've got that Disney money, but Jesus. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, if you think about it, like the amount of awesome Marvel characters that they haven't even, like, touched on yet in the MCU mm -hmm. is astounding. So the fact that they're choosing to do a Wonder Man series <laughs> when you have a plethora of other characters you could dive into, I don't know, man. I mean, they haven't even introduced the X-Men yet, or, or I mean, Ghost Rider, like, <laughs> or Squirrel Girl, come on. <laughs> I'd much rather have a Squirrel Girl-like series than Wonder Man, honestly. That was probably on the table, David, and that was probably between the two. But Good, I hope it happens. <laughs> I just feel like with the X-Men and Ghost Rider, they're waiting for certain moments to happen in the MCU I'm before sure. you get those. I'm sure, but I'd rather have them spend their time and energy on those concepts and those stories than you know, working on a Wonder Man series. It's a machine by now. They they want like, hey, we need a Marvel series for right here. Let's you just throw a random character. To, yeah, I mean, I get it, man. <laughs> You're not going to change my mind. Fuck Wonder I, I Man. Know. <laughs> like, I understand how storytelling works, Christian, but like, I don't see how Wonder Man really adds anything to the big picture. So, but whatever. I'll get over it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But anyway, moving on, uh, Idris Elba reportedly in talks to play James Bond. Outside the realm of superheroes, we get some news on the possible next super spy. And you know what? For once, I'm not kidding around. The man suited for every role, Idris Elba might actually pick up the name Bond, James Bond. 
and Insider told news reports recently that Elba is in talks for the role. With Daniel Craig exiting the franchise officially, talks of bringing Idris Elba into the role rose to new heights and it seems producers did some market research and saw that he is highly ranked amongst potential stars. But with all that said, Elba is hitting 50 and I feel like with these films coming out you know, every two to three years, I can't imagine he would be in the role for like the next five films. Not that that's kind of a prerequisite at all, I just figured they were probably going to go with someone a bit younger like we saw with Daniel Craig in the earlier films. But hey, I'm more than happy as a Bond fan to see Idris Elba take on the moniker. Yeah, but I mean, he's in damn good shape for a 50 year old, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, of course, <laughs> I can see him playing the role to, you know, into his 60s. So, I mean, Conry was, you know, pretty damn old when he yes. had the role. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like, and I feel like nowadays in Hollywood, 50 is like the new 30. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm fine with it. I'm not a huge James Bond fan by any means, but honestly, like, I would definitely be interested in seeing, you know, Elba, you know, take on the role. Um, because I feel like he levels up everything that he's in. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it multiple times in the past, you know, if there were going to be another Bond film, he would be perfect for the role. There's no question in that, you know? Yeah, I mean, we fantasy cast him in other roles all the exactly. time. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I'm on board with this. But anyway, for our next story, we have some Avatar The Last Airbender animated news. Nickelodeon announced a new trilogy of animated films for Avatar The Last Airbender that are coming from Nickelodeon Animation and Paramount Animation with Lauren Montgomery of previous Avatar fame back at work on these films, along with creators Brian Canizzo and Michael Bimatino, which I apologize again if I said your guys' names wrong. They're all, they're both set to produce with Eric Coleman, another Avatar alum. These works are all coming out of Nickelodeon's new Avatar studio, whose focus is working, of course, on the world of Avatar as a whole. So you can probably look forward to a whole lot more Avatar coming your way from Nickelodeon. And we'll also see how that live action Netflix series does as well in the meantime, since these films are most likely still in early pre-production. So over the past year through my daughter's fandom for you know the animated series i've you know actually become a fan also uh so i found this news really exciting uh i'm glad that the original creators are attached i think that is a huge deal um i'm curious to see what direction they take these films um i know that there's an ongoing like i believe it's ongoing a dark horse uh comic book series that's supposed to take place directly after the events of the finale um which my daughter has been like reading like religiously <laughs> so i'm wondering if like that makes these books not in canon anymore which isn't a big deal but i it, i i'm also kind of assuming that they're going to kind of tell the story of what happens next after the finale and maybe that's not the case you know maybe this is somehow a prequel or maybe this is something that you know like an in-between adventure that takes place during the series where we see a much older like ang and crew like go on their like final adventures i mean there's so much untapped potential with avatar i mean you could even start i, I imagine they're going to start going into the past looking at previous avatars of their lives and stuff like that there's so much you can do with it and you can see that nickelodeon definitely sees that and that's why they've created a whole studio to focus on it. Oh, there's so been a I, huge avatar push yes. over the last couple mm -hmm. of years, um, just with like merchandise and everything. Like I assumed it just was all about the upcoming Netflix series they're doing, which is live action. Uh, but with this being announced, it all kind of makes sense now. Yeah, I mean, at this point, 
it's been over 10 years yes. since the original series. So I'm sure all those younger fans are now becoming nostalgic, you know, which is just the cycle of life. So the one thing I did notice with my daughter, you know, just discovering the series and her being seven is a lot of the merchandise is more geared towards like adults, like all the clothing are, you know, adult size, you know, there's uh -huh. barely any like children <laughs> avatar shirts right now. I'm guessing they'll all change, you know, once all these new projects come out. But yeah, I mean, there's a huge nostalgia factor in play right now um have you guys watched legends of horror yet no she watched the first two episodes and she wasn't really digging it mm -hmm. she actually got more into like the you know the i believe it's dark horse the dark horse comics she's actually reading a novel on one of the avatars from the past right now so okay. um i i the, the name eludes me but you know like i said she's a huge avatar fan and because of that i've become a fan of it it's like one of the shows that she watches that i can actually sit down and really get into uh so i'm excited about this news but last but definitely not least season two of squid game has been officially announced by netflix get ready for more games as squid game season two is on its way announced by netflix this past week that it's officially been greenlit and we will see the return of jihan and the Mad frontman though no date has actually been announced just yet but if that announcement wasn't fun enough they're also actually working on a reality tv show of squid game that will have a 4.65 million dollar prize on the line though no death is involved as far as netflix says no death involved what's the point then christian i don't know <laughs> i mean really isn't it just like an adult like double dare then honestly, like <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I mean, I loved the first season. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know that. So I'm definitely looking forward to this. I mean, this was kind of announced already by the director, so it's not like huge news, uh, but it, it's definitely exciting. You never know with Netflix series nowadays. It seems like a lot of times they get announced and they end up getting like still canceled in mm. pre-production. But I mean, Squid Game was such a huge hit. I can't imagine that being the case. I mean, for crying out loud that like super nun show that we watched a couple years back <laughs> is, is getting a second season so wait what they, yeah yeah they announced it this week oh get out of here yeah, i'm telling you it <laughs> <laughs> was horrible i'm telling you like regardless of all the news of netflix recently taking a huge hit uh -huh. they're gonna be okay if they're making that fucking nun show again if they're giving that a second season Obviously, the rumors of their demise have been exaggerated. So. Uh -huh. All right, Christian, it's that time again. Let's go ahead and break down episode five of Obi-Wan. Warning, spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Obi-Wan Kenobi series ahead. You have been warned. A Jedi's goal is to defend life, not take it. Mercy doesn't defeat an enemy, Master. <laughs> Oh, Episode 5 actually takes us to the past as we see, you know, a young Anakin or, well, what's supposed to be a young Anakin sparking up for a practice duel with Obi-Wan inside the Jedi Temple. Yeah, what happened here? Did someone forget, like, the de-aging technology at home? <laughs> like, I mean... Why? <laughs> 
why even just they, like some basic makeup right like why did they not bother like de-aging him like we know that they have that like capability nowadays uh-huh you would think that obi-wan would have a huge budget uh i mean it was a little jarring but i still enjoyed the scene i mean no hate to christian hayden but he looked older than obi-wan in the sea that's why i was just so <laughs> thrown off yeah because he's supposed to be like 18 years old at this point right because it takes place right before attack of the clones Exactly. So, yeah. No, I mean, he's definitely a 40-year-old man like, <laughs> in this scene. Uh, but it is what it is. I was able to suspend disbelief, like, once we got into it. And I'm just glad that we, you know, got this scene. Because I was getting a little worried after last episode, which felt like the episode that they would have the flashback in. That we mm -hmm. weren't going to get any moments with Hayden Christensen as Anakin. So, story-wise, this was definitely a sigh of relief for me. Meanwhile, in the present timeline, Reva reports in to Vader about the location of Obi-Wan thanks to her tracker on Leia's droid, Lola. Vader, pleased with her results, officially grants her the title of Grand Inquisitor before setting a course to Jabim. On Jabim, Obi-Wan lands with the team that helped you know, him save Leia. There we see most of the people that the Path have been helping out throughout this show and actually getting to see old characters return like the family from the second episode along with the now wanted Haja Astri. While Obi-Wan is eager to get to Alderaan and deliver Leia back to the Organas, he must first help Roken and company you know, get everyone to safety. I thought this moment here was kind of like a softening of, you know, Obi-Wan's attitude, you know, with his willingness to actually help. I mean, he really has no choice because they basically tell him we're not doing anything until, you know, we complete this mission first. But like he doesn't fight it. Whereas in the first, you know, couple episodes, he was so broken. It seemed like his sole purpose for existing was just to keep Luke safe. And, you know, he really didn't give a damn about anything else going on. I mean, he basically hung that other Jedi out to dry, no pun intended. Um, but yeah, no. So here it, it seems like he was more accepting, you know, to help and, you know, more motivated to do so. As Vader's Star Destroyer approaches Jabim, Reva questions their attack plan as she would assume it's better to wait out and keep them trapped within their hideout to, you know, overall weaken them. But Vader isn't interested in anyone but Obi-Wan and wants to attack immediately. I mean, Vader knows Obi-Wan so well that he knows that he could probably get him out of hiding quicker by attacking them where, you know, knowing that Obi-Wan will give himself up. I mean, it's very much similar to what he did in episode three when he's in that town. He just starts yanking citizens out and dragging them and, you know, breaking necks and force choking people, uh -huh. <laughs> knowing that eventually he's going to stir up Obi-Wan, you know, so... Uh, this makes perfect sense. We then cut to Jabim, where Leia's droid Lola is sneaking about. While everyone is kind of busy loading up their belongings onto the transport ship, Lola goes into the base's kind of hardwired gate controls and cuts some wires, forcing the gate to close, effectively trapping everyone as Vader arrives to the planet. Obi-Wan is quick to call out Vader's strategy, knowing he will attack as quickly as possible rather than set up for a siege, as his memories of Anakin bring us back to their duel in the temple as Anakin you know, takes a strong, aggressive approach to their fight, undermining what Obi-Wan is attempting to teach him during this moment. I love that this flashback runs throughout the entire episode, and it seems like both, you know, Obi-Wan and Vader are, you know, having the same flashback moment since both of them kind of alternate as, like, the transition. It is sad to think that even though this takes place before, you know, uh, the Clone Wars, 
not much has changed when it comes to Anakin's nature. Like, Obi-Wan was never able to really, like, crack that shell and reach him. Uh, you know, Anakin still hasn't learned, as we'll see, you know, at the end of this episode. He truly was too old to be trained. <laughs> <laughs> Forehead wrinkles and all. Obi-Wan, understanding the situation they are in with Vader, kind of rallies the group together for a counteroffensive. Meanwhile, Riva and a battalion of stormtroopers set up big guns outside their main gate and immediately start blasting at the shield doors. Now, I didn't think too much of it during the scene, but it, it was kind of weird because in most shows and most films I watch, when there's kind of this rah-rah speech right before something like this, and especially since this was all brought down upon them because of Obi-Wan, I was surprised that nobody said anything. They all just were like, okay, let's do it. You know, it was all, it was very much a positive attitude when he's kind of brought doom to their door. <laughs> well, I mean, what other choice they do they have at this point? I mean, they're not going to start arguing with the guy, you know, uh -huh. whether under siege. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure at this point their assholes are just clinching and they're just trying to survive. Although I, I agree, I, I'm a little surprised that you didn't get more resistance from Roken at least. He seemed like that mm. character who would call out Obi-Wan on his bullshit, but that didn't happen here. Back inside, Roken is struggling to get the base's you know, roof gate open and is questioned by Haja why he doesn't try to just go into the vent and see what's going on. Leia being the only one who is small enough to actually get into those vents immediately volunteers to help, in which Obi-Wan pushes Roken to allow it. Obi-Wan then goes to a separate area to check his comm link while you know they continue to prepare to leave. Bail Organa leaves a distressing message as he fears the worst for his daughter after not hearing back from Obi-Wan for so long. Organa claims that if he doesn't hear from him soon, that he will go to Tatooine to watch over Luke and warn Owen in fear of what Vader might discover of his two children. I mean, you could argue he should be doing this anyway, right? I mean, with Obi-Wan no longer on the planet, you would think that Bail would send, you know, some of his, you know, soldiers or, you know, whatever, bodyguards over there to kind of watch over Luke since he knows he's not protected and all the shit, you know, mm -hmm. being stirred up right now by the Inquisitors. So I don't know. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like send someone else, maybe the senator of, you know, yes. this planet shouldn't go over Might there Might be a himself. big red flag, right? Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> be a little more stealthy about it. Because it sounds like he's visiting by himself. And that's... Yeah, I'm sure that's probably not the case, but I mean... They should have worked this out prior to, you know, Obi-Wan uh -huh. leaving Tatooine. <laughs> Tala then finds a more stressed out Obi-Wan and decides to open up a bit about her past on becoming a double agent inside the Empire, you know, claiming that she was once part of a project called Harvester on Lothal, which we actually learned about from Star Wars Rebels as Inquisitors were kidnapping Force-sensitive children. In her mission, she gave up several families to the Inquisitors, which ended up getting 14 people killed and six of them children, ultimately pushing her over the edge to turn on the Empire. I thought this was an awesome moment. It really gave you insight of just the horrors of what, you know, the Empire has been doing with the Inquisitors. Um, and you got to really think that there are plenty who share similar stories with Tala, and that's really how rebellions start. I'm really hoping in the upcoming, you know, Andor series, we get to see similar stories, you know, be told. Because it really does add just this 
deeper dimension of how awful you know the empire really is with the imperial forces nearly bursting through their outer defenses obi-wan approaches the gate to negotiate with reva of course with roken and a bunch of the path members set up behind him in case things go sour here, Obi-Wan questions how Reva knew who Vader was. Obi-Wan, like many of us speculated, deduces that the only way Reva would have actually known who Anakin was is if she was there the day of Order 66, and a youngling no doubt as well. As we're then introduced to Reva's perspective of Anakin's march into the temple slaughtering younglings, Reva, horrifyingly enough, didn't die during the attack, but hid amongst the dead bodies waiting for the siege on the temple to end. I mean, the line and I'm paraphrasing, but like I could feel my friend's bodies go cold as I hit amongst mm. them. Holy shit. <laughs> That's some, th that is fucked up, Christian. I mean, th they had a warning in the beginning of this episode yes. about how disturbing it was going to be. Because I, <laughs> in Revenge of the Sith, we don't actually see him strike any younglings down, right? It's just in that security. Uh, kind of. That security yeah, in the footage, security footage. Yeah. Briefly, right? I mean, this was pretty messed up. Um, but I think it was important to really show what a monster Anakin really became in that moment. And really, like, this back and forth between Reva and Obi-Wan, I, I thought was Reva's best character moment, you know, throughout the entire series so far. Obi-Wan attempts to bring Reva to his side, knowing her plan has, you know, been to go after Vader all along. But Reva refuses, throwing the mistake of him training Anakin in his face and asking why he wasn't there to save them. And ultimately, she cuts the door open, kicking off the battle on Jabim. Yeah, I mean, once again, I'm really happy with the sequence. I mean, not just because it's, you know, what we were really speculating and assuming was going on with her story, um, but I feel like it just makes perfect sense for what we've seen from the character and it all kind of tracks, um, you know, like why she's using Obi-Wan, how she knows who Anakin is, um, you know, and what her real motives are. Uh, so, I, you know, I thought this all worked really well. I mean, I think I said it before, Reva as a character, plays as the living embodiment of obi-wan's guilt um and she's literally like hunting him and haunting him uh so you know even though her end game is to get at vader like she's she doesn't have any love for obi-wan and she in fact blames him for his failure as a master and what i love about that scene is it's clear that obi-wan blames himself as well you know he's really feeling it in that oh, moment as well absolutely i mean even though he's starting to like you know come back into form as a jedi you know that guilt is going nowhere and i really think that's the strongest aspect of this series that they're showing just how broken obi-wan is because if you think about it without this series we'd never actually see that play out because the next time we see Obi-Wan after Revenge of the Sith is in A New Hope, and he feels like a very different character. <laughs> um, whereas after, you know, the events of the Clone Wars and Order 66, it only makes sense that Obi-Wan would be carrying this heavy burden with him. While Leia is hard at work trying to find out what's wrong with the gates, the path are on the back foot as stormtroopers inevitably, you know, flood in despite Obi-Wan's best efforts. Getting behind another blast door, Tala and Ned B unfortunately don't make it as Tala sacrifices herself after being wounded, getting the door shut for them and taking some troopers down with her as she uses a thermal detonator to clear the hall. Yeah, I mean, it was heartbreaking seeing Tala make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, I did question why she didn't use that, you know, bomb beforehand. 
like once you know the empire infiltrated you know the facility like why should you just like bowl that thing towards them and make a run for it but it's okay <laughs> i get it i mean they were bottlenecking them i don't know they had a weird strategy here <laughs> but it was sad to see ned b go uh great robot we'll sorely miss him yeah i mean i was almost as sad about Ned B going as I was tall, honestly. So with victory near at hand, Vader has Reva stand down as he makes his approach. We're again given a glimpse of their duel in the past as Anakin overpowers Obi-Wan, bringing him to kneel and trying to have him admit defeat. Obi-Wan in the present time realizes he needs to surrender himself in order to protect everyone, giving his lightsaber and communicator to Haja. Now in the custody of Reva, Obi-Wan appeals to her you know, need for vengeance as he opens Reva's eyes to the possibility that Vader will be blinded by his need to confront Obi-Wan, giving her an opportunity to catch Vader by surprise. While Reva doesn't say anything at this moment, it's clear that she has some intrigue by what Obi-Wan has been saying. Nonetheless, she still has him taken away Way. I thought this made sense, but I didn't know why this wasn't her plan all along. I just kind of uh -huh. assumed that's what she was going for here by like, you know, using Obi-Wan to smoke out Vader. But I understand why they did it this way, story-wise. In the past, while Obi-Wan is able to evade most of Anakin's attacks, Anakin continues on with a heavy assault, eventually disarming Obi-Wan Kenobi. Again, Anakin claims that he's won, but Obi-Wan retorts his need for victory blinds him, while in present time, Vader joins Reva at the Outer Gates. I thought this flashback sequence was one of the best written things in the entire series, and did just a great job of just encapsulating the relationship between, you know, master and apprentice, you know, between Obi-Wan and Anakin, um, and just, you know, really forced all of Anakin's character flaws into the light. Um, but also the fact that, you know, it really seems like, as you mentioned earlier, they're both living this out and kind of playing this mental chess with one another, trying to see, you know, ha you know, has the Either one of them learned from their past experiences, you know? Although it does feel a little weird that, you know, Vader is, you know, remembering back to this moment and he still doesn't learn from it. <laughs> but that's what makes him so flawed. Obi-Wan inside escapes the troopers watching over him and makes his way back to the path where, you know, Leia is still working on opening the roof gate for them to escape. As she finally gets close to the problem, Lola attacks her. But Leia is quick to find what's controlling her robot and removes it. Now being able to actually work together though, Lola and Leia get the gate open, giving everyone enough time to load up onto the transport. But as they do, Haja scrambles and kind of drops Obi-Wan's communicator. God damn it, Haja. What are you doing? <laughs> I thought this was perfect use of Leia during this episode. Like we we got just enough of her, right? Mm -hmm. um, there was no like elaborate slow motion chase sequence between her and the <laughs> droid, like because that's kind of what my fear was once I found out she was mm -hmm. going into the vent. But this was just enough to hit home like how resourceful she is even at this young age. I mean, I didn't know shit about engineering at 10, uh -uh. so <laughs> I give her credit. You also didn't have the force. <laughs> True. Vader, quickly discovering that Obi-Wan has escaped, beelines it straight to the hangar. 
opening blast doors with the force only to then find a transport ship on its way out of the hangar. And here we see Vader's full power on display as he uses the force to stop the ship in midair, slowly bringing it back down to the ground and then proceeds to just rip it open. But luckily for everyone else, this was all a decoy as the real transport ship makes its way out of the hangar with Vader watching on. Man, this was the moment here, right? <laughs> yes. This show has done such a great job of really emphasizing just how powerful and fucking terrifying Vader really is. I feel like over the years after the original trilogy, like if you weren't reading like all the different novels and comics, Vader almost felt, you know, nerfed a little because he became such an iconic character like, you know, Santa Claus, where you kind of lose perspective of what kind of, you know, terrifying monster he really is. Um, so I do think Disney deserves a lot of credit for putting Vader's unbridled, you know, villainy on full display and making him actually scary again. Yeah, you won't forget where you were when you saw jars of, you know, younglings in a fucking cave, pretty much. In a hallway? <laughs> in a yeah, hallway. A trophy room <laughs> of his victims? Yeah. Back in the past at the Jedi Temple, the disarmed Obi-Wan shows Anakin the mistakes he's made by rushing in for victory. Obi-Wan unarmed dodges out of the way and is able to use the Force to take Anakin's lightsaber. Obi-Wan then you know goes on to compliment Anakin on being a great warrior but tells him that his need to prove himself is you know his ultimate undoing and what's holding him back from actually becoming a Jedi Knight. I feel like compliment might be too strong of a term because he does like end the little talk by saying that's why you're still a fucking Padawan you know. Uh uh -huh. <laughs> I mean it's just something that we've heard from Obi-Wan multiple times like you're a great warrior but you still aren't, you know, getting this lesson across. It still makes me wonder why on earth would they like make him a Jedi Knight and then give him a Padawan to teach? <laughs> That's right, because this is before Ahsoka, right? Yes. My guess is they thought Ahsoka would bring out more maturity from him. Um, and I mean, in the Clone Wars, you do see that. Um, but obviously it wasn't enough. In present time, Reva makes her move, but is stopped in her tracks by a pissed off Vader. Reva stands zero chance against Vader here, as he completely just dances around her, never once lighting his own blade. Breaking hers into two though, he continues to overpower her like it's nothing. So this scene totally gave me like goosebumps, like just Vader like playing with his food before he eats, like putting on some like Jedi food demonstration. Uh, I mean, he doesn't even pull out his own lightsaber for crying out loud. Uh, I loved every moment of this and I want more. God damn it. Like give Vader his own show. Like, I'm in for it, like, at this point. <laughs> I mean, this was amazing. And, too, if you think about it, like, he's kind of, like, using Obi-Wan's lesson here in this moment. You know, where, like, Reva <laughs> is, like, playing the role of Anakin, you know, being the aggressor. And he's just barely, like, breaking a sweat, you know? No, I, I would pay an extra premium to watch a Jedi Hunt Vader oh show. Like, so quick. I would, oh. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever get it, but I mean, a man could dream. Reva kneeling and looking up at Vader in a kind of like parallel to what she saw the night of Order 66, Vader then stabs her through the gut and claims he knows exactly who she is, remembering her as a youngling. So this was something we kind of suspected all along that he was really just using Reva and harnessing like, you know, her rage, you know, to flush out Obi-Wan. 
I'm not sure where that all began. I'm guessing probably when she tried to take out the Grand Inquisitor. Um, but it does kind of make sense when you consider like how forgiving he seemed to be, especially at the end of mm-hmm. last episode where, you know, she let Obi-Wan kind of just infiltrate the base and walk out with Leia. So I'm glad that they played it this way. I mean, Palpatine practically lays out in front of him, you know, this is a replacement program in case I ever, you know, need to replace you, Vader. And that's why he, like, he can't stand the sight of them. So seeing him put this much restraint. Yes, the Inquisitors. Seeing him show this much restraint for Reva, I mean, definitely... He was definitely holding back uh-huh. quite a bit. Yeah, because in the beginning of the episode, I did like bump up against the fact that he was just so willing to give her, you know, the title of Grand Inquisitor and not like wait to see how things worked out with capturing mm-hmm. Obi-Wan. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, well, this is why, you know, that it all makes sense. It was more of a case of him really trying to like gain her trust. Also, the fact that he remembers her as a youngling is also fucked up. Right? (laughs) And I remember all your friends I killed because they're in the hallway in giant yellow jars, which is crazy to think because she has to walk down that hallway too. Mm Mm-hmm. This is when the true Grand Inquisitor is revealed to be alive all along, as he mocks her failure at revenge, noting that her rage was only ever used as a tool to get what they actually wanted in the end. But now that they are done with her, they plan to just leave her there wounded but not dead, as Vader and the Grand Inquisitor then make their leave. I hope this is a lesson to the fucking internet. Relax. Let the story Uh play out (laughs) before everyone starts getting outraged. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Especially knowing like David Filoni's attached to this project. Of course, he's not going to fuck with the continuity since it's his own continuity. Right? Like the. Exactly. Come on. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) what a slap in the face. Like they don't even bother like finishing her off because she's just so insignificant to them which i i don't know i think that's a bit of a mistake she can be you know resourceful when she wants to be you know i feel like she's capable of causing some mis after seeing that fight scene i don't think vader has a worry in the world (laughs) well vader of course not (laughs) and to be fair i mean he does like impale her so and Uh i don't know how she survived it as a young lane but i mean it looks like she might survive it here also uh advanced medical techniques i guess that we're just and maybe she's gonna go visit the same mod guy that finnick sees in book of boba fett (laughs) on the transport ship roken reports to obi-wan that the you know hyperdrive is down but obi-wan seems to be a bit distracted by a sudden disturbance in the force as we then cut down to reva finding his comlink to organa with the message organa last left about Luke on Tatooine. And while the message is damaged enough, it still gives Reva a lead on where she should go next. And even with the Empire on their tails, Obi-Wan seems to just still be more distracted by the sudden feeling of dread as we cut to a young Luke sleeping on Tatooine as our episode comes to a close. So do you think she's heading to Tatooine to get vengeance on Obi-Wan using Luke? I feel like that would be the next step for her, but- Or is she gonna use Luke to go another round with Vader? I guess to go with Vader, because that's her main goal, that's her main target. I just don't know how you handle that in a situation where Vader can't know about Luke. Yeah, continuity-wise, yeah, definitely. Yes. I'm guessing that 
the Empire catches up to Obi-Wan and the ship beforehand. They have a battle because it feels like they're definitely going to have a final battle of some sort. Um, mm. And then that leads to, you know, afterwards, Obi-Wan racing off to Tatooine and, you know, finding Reva in like Luke's room or something. <laughs> something creepy like that. I could also see that final showdown between Reva and Obi-Wan if it does go that way. Um, paralleling what happens between like Obi-Wan and Maul in the Rebels series where Maul kind of knows that he doesn't really have a chance against Obi-Wan at this point but you know he's so driven and determined it's almost like he doesn't know what else to do honestly if there was a um confirmed second season for the show I would I would almost say that this was a perfect conclusion like I would be fine with this because with this episode how it went yeah yeah I mean at this point we really don't know and maybe you know they leave us at the end of episode six with a lot of meat on the bone and you mm. know that will be kind of like their confirmation that no there's still more story to be told um <laughs> you know like if you know we end with the final battle between obi-wan and you know uh vader but then we see reva land on tatooine yeah so but i mean i can't imagine that unless they give us one of those like end title cards i think they kind of did it with uh boba fett at the end of the uh, mandalorian season two where you know it was like you know, follow the story in the book of Boba Fett, you know, something along those lines. I think, yeah, so, you're right. I mean, maybe we get something like that. I don't know. But I, I just, I still don't think Reva's going to, you know, get out of this season alive. But anyway, overall, I thought this was a great episode, if not the best episode of the entire series so far. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot I could sit there and nitpick on, but really when you give me this many fantastic moments <laughs> with some of my favorite characters of all time, it's hard for me not to be unbiased, so I loved every second of this. I mean, as far as like structure goes, I thought this was really cool to watch. I really enjoyed the mirroring of the story between the past and present. Like, I enjoyed how they put that all together. And then, of course, yeah, we got these fucking awesome moments with Vader. So, of course, I'm all in on this. I think this was one of the best episodes of this season. Well, with that being said, make sure to join us next week for the finale of Obi-Wan. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there's a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right, Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best, biggest, ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader below the waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20 Nerd Show. Nothing makes you feel more platinum than having your hygiene in check. And with convention season upon us, you're gonna wanna make sure you're smelling good and feeling good while you wait in line. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. The Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0 is the one-stop shop for the man who deserves it all. 
They've designed this package to allow you to fully align your entire hygiene routine with their elite products. Inside this platinum package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, Ultra Premium Body Wash, Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo Plus Conditioner, Ultra Premium Deodorant, Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Ball Spray Toner, Anti-Chafing Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag to hold your goods while traveling. The Lawnmower 4.0 Body Trimmer and Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer feature proprietary advanced skin safe technology to protect your delicate parts and holes. Both are actually water resistant so you can shave with less mess. In addition to shaving, you can now completely upgrade your shower routine with an ultra premium body wash and ultra premium 2-in-1 plus conditioner. You'll have your skin and hair feeling hydrated and smelling fresh. And don't forget to apply their aluminum free ultra premium deodorant for that cologne quality scent on the go. Thankfully, their Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner can solve this problem for you. Once they touch your sack, you'll never go back. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Platinum Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag bring your comfort and boxers to another level. The Platinum Package 4.0 covers all bases from head to toe. It's the best bang for your shebang. So listeners, get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com using our code 20NerdShow. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. All right, Christian, let's go ahead and jump right into it because we also have episode two of Ms. Marvel to break down this week. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Miss Marvel series ahead. You have been warned. Okay. Well, let's focus on what we know. Light comes out of you, and it hardens. Let's call it hard light. Groundbreaking. On this week's episode of Miss Marvel, one of the bigger elements of this episode was Kamala trying out her powers. As described by our hero, the hard light that she produces is like an ideal come to life. It plays well with this overly imaginative character. So I did get excited when they used the term hard light, and it's probably just, you know, years of, you know, reading the internet and speculating on all these shows and movies and shit, but hard light in the X-Men is, you know, how their danger room operates and how they simulate all their training sequences against some of their like bigger villains. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, Joss Whedon uses the concept even further um, in his run on Astonishing X-Men, where he actually has the danger room come to life as danger. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was I was excited. I, I mean, I don't think anything's going to come of it, but <laughs> uh, it was still pretty cool. Bruno, the kind of tech genius of this show, also notices that the band seems to be channeling energy that was already inside Kamala rather than creating it itself. And then you had this moment here where I started getting worried that she is indeed an inhuman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, don't say it. Don't say inhuman. But I'm guessing most likely it's it's more of like she's actually somehow part of an alien race or something like that. But in thinking about it, like, I'm guessing that since the quantum bands are in play here, it's probably more of a case of almost what we got with uh, recently in the Captain Marvel books, uh, that she might actually be like, you know, part like Kree or another alien race. And the bands are just, you know, drawing from, you know, her 
DNA somehow and like tapping into that. There was also a theory going around that they could be the nega bands uh, that could draw energy from the negative zone. And that's what the zone that she falls into is, which are also attached to the Kree. You know, I think you're right. I actually forgot about the nega bands because the nega bands are, they're similar to the quantum bands, but I think they're more in like Kree origin. So uh, maybe that's the case. I mean, I feel like they're kind of the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it is probably the Nega bands, not the quantum bands. You know, not what Quasar wore, but more of what I think the original Captain Marvel wore. So that would even give her more of a direct link, you know, to to, uh, Carol's story. Kamala then wants to learn more about the origins of this power and or the band itself as we get to a bigger plot thread of this episode, which throughout we learn little bits here and there from, you know, Kamala's grandmother along with Kamala's dad on the kind of history of their family. We learn that during the end of the British rule in India called the partition that led to a civil war in the area, there was a night in which, you know, Kamala's grandmother Sana had miraculously made it onto the last train leaving the city just as a toddler. Sana had claimed simply that she had followed the stars, but we also learned during that same story that Sana's mother, Kamala's grandmother, disappeared entirely that same night. Kamala's mom is clearly uncomfortable with talking about her mother Sana and her grandmother Aisha, as Muniba and most of their community claim her great-grandmother Aisha shamed kind of the whole family. So, I mean, obviously there's more to this story. Uh, I do love the fact that I have no clue where they're going um, right now Where when it comes to her origin story and her powers uh, because it is drastically different than, you know, her inhuman, you know, backstory in the comics. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that aspect of, you know, kind of, you know, going into this series blind when it comes to, like, Kamala and her history is pretty fucking cool and actually refreshing. <laughs> My guess at this point is that her great-grandmother obviously is the one who has you know, this, you know, superpower DNA and is the source of Kamala's power. And maybe everything's not all that it seems to the family and that she actually had to make some kind of sacrifice to get them all to safety. I feel like in that story of um, her grandmother, Sana, alone, I felt like, oh, the great grandmother was like creating hard light to like show her a way Mm -hmm. to get into the train. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe she was tapping into her own power somehow. But I mean, regardless, I'm also enjoying how they're using the mystery of her powers to also kind of explore, you know, her family's history and culture at the same time. With Kamala looking for the truth about her band, we also get a good look into her more day-to-day life as we visit her mosque. Kamala's best friend Nakia points out some of the conditions of the women's partition section of the mosque, prompting Kamala to kind of push Nakia to join the board to help, you know, make some changes for them. Nakia decides to actually run for the board slot, which actually leads to what was probably my favorite scene in the entire episode where Nakia guilt trips Kamala's father into supporting her bid for the board. I mean, you gotta love her dad. They really made him a lovable character. But once again, like, you know, not to beat a dead horse, it's great to see them give us a real inside look into, like, Kamala's culture as a practicing Muslim, um, you know, and use it as a way to get to know her and, you know, her people. It's obviously such a big part of the character and really one of the reasons why she resonates so much with, you know, the audience. I know for me personally, with my father being a Muslim man, 
I mean, he wasn't from Pakistan, he was from uh, Iran, but regardless, seeing Muslims actually portrayed in a positive light means a lot. Uh, I mean, growing up, the only representation I had was the Iron Sheik, and don't get me wrong, I love Sheiky Baby, but I, it would have been nice to have a hero who looked like my family on TV. So with that being said, I'm sure this is going to mean a lot for younger generations. Most of the rest of the show really focuses on Kamala's big old crush on Kamran. Running into him at Zoe Zimmer's party, the two hit it off immediately much to the friend zoned Bruno's dismay. The two get closer as Kamran offers her you know, driving lessons, and I don't know what her parents taught her, but she really just cannot be on the road. She just drives everywhere. Anyway, in the comics, Kamran also turned out to be an inhuman like Kamala, so we will see if he has any powers as the show continues. I know last episode we kind of talked about how the scenes in the high school felt very like Disney Channel, um, mm -hmm. but in this episode I didn't feel like that was the case. Honestly, it felt more like, you know, a John Hughes film. So much so that like it didn't bother me at all that we didn't have much like super heroics going on. You know, for most of this episode, honestly. And like I said last week, I just feel like it's so important that they get her life as a high schooler right to tell her story properly. It just felt like this week, it, it felt a little more authentic. At least if you watched a lot of 80s, you know, teenage dramas. <laughs> In this week's episode's final moments, we see Kamala trying to put her skills to the test as a young boy who was taking probably the dumbest selfie ever outside one of the mosque tower's window and slips where he barely catches himself, stopping his fall. But Kamala rushes up using her hard light to make her way to him and actually catch him, though she nearly drops him after a vision of a woman comes through her hard light. Kamala is dressed up in her Miss Marvel costume, so no one actually knows that it's her, but kids on the street are still calling her nightlight thanks to Zoe Zimmer's story of how she got saved. I really enjoyed the sequence because it just showed like she's still a novice at this. Like she's just not out yes. there, you know, saving the day. Like she's just as scared as the boy in this moment. Um, like so much so when she almost drops him, like she's terrified and she makes a run for it. So, I mean, when she does like finally start to master her powers, it's going to be even that much of a bigger deal. Because a lot of times, if you think about it in a lot of these you know, films where they're telling the origin story of a superhero, <laughs> they do kind of like figure things out way too quickly. Oh, yeah. You know, we get like a training montage, you know, and that's it. And I really thought they were going to go that route here, you know, because in the beginning we do kind of have that sequence, but she's still not ready yet. So, I mean, it makes sense that they haven't really introduced, you know, a big bad, you know, if you will. In her defense in this scene, the boy took way too long. Like he could have jumped <laughs> over to her like at any point. Well, Christian, as someone who's scared of heights, okay, I understood where he was coming from because he was just on some like random blue plates. <laughs> so I get it. You're way too hard on these characters, man. <laughs> Kamala and her driving and this poor eight year old. <laughs> I'm just being honest, all right? Just being coming honest. Face to face with his death. Jesus. Now, I don't know if I was alone, too. Like, the woman who appears, I just assumed right away that was her uh, great grandmother. Yes, especially since, you know, in the first time she actually appears is during right after that story is told. You know, she slightly is like in the distance and we see light and that what makes Kamala pass out in that scene. Yeah, so, so it really felt like it was a reaction to the story. And I was like, 100% there with you, like convinced, oh, this must be the great grandmother coming out. 
damage control who is hot on Kamala's trail of superheroing try to stop her in an alley actually using Stark Tech drones from Spider-Man Far From Home. However, Kamala is able to escape them thanks to a seemingly random save from Kamran who turns out to know maybe a little bit more about Kamala than she may have thought thanks to the woman from her visions actually sitting in the back seat of his car. To show you how invested I was into like this little budding relationship between these two teenagers, I right away started to get concerned that like he was just faking interest in her for like alternative motives. So, and that might be the case, which will just be heartbreaking. <laughs> Still very much possible. I don't know. A lot of people say they have great chemistry. I just, I had a feeling that there was something up with it from the get-go. I guess I'm a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, since now that we know that this mystical woman that she does, like, keep on having visions of um, isn't her great-grandmother, who do you think she is? I mean, do you think she is going to end up being the big bad of the story? Or is she just there to kind of guide Kamala on her journey? Um, or, you know, something else that I haven't thought about yet. I mean, it could go in, in either direction at this point. Because we don't know too much about who the big bad's going to be. If there's any, like, because there hasn't been any anything alluding to a big villain in this show mm -hmm. yet. So I'm assuming in episode three, we'll learn more about where this direction of the whole show is actually going to be yeah. going. And, you know, honestly, like, does the show need a big bad? Can this serve as just a prologue to Miss Marvel's character into the MCU and into, you know, the Marvel's film that we know that's coming out next year? I mean, it very much could, but I definitely think there's going to be a no, big bad. Me too, right? <laughs> you always need something to, like, battle, you know, and punch at the mm. end of the day. <laughs> It is a it's even a, if it's a yeah, small. I mean, band. it's a Marvel, you know, property. So mm. I, I, I don't think I'd be disappointed if that wasn't the case. But sure, a lot of people would be. <laughs> it does seem like damage control is definitely going to be, you know, part of the equation when it comes to a big bad, you know, for the show. Um, and in the comics, honestly, like the in the Marvel universe, they do enact something. Uh, called the Cradle Act, where it's a registration, a superhero registration, similar to what we get during the Civil War, but it's for teenage uh, superheroes, basically, with powers. It's basically like a law saying that they can't use their powers until they're 18 years old. So I'm wondering if that's kind of the route they're going with damage control right now. Um, we did see them, like, interrogate, like, you know, Peter Parker, um, although, you know, he obviously had a better lawyer. Who knows? Maybe Matt Murdock shows up here and, you know, represents Kamala. I mean, we did hear that, you know, he would be making multiple appearances throughout these Disney Plus series. So, I mean, th that could be a possibility. Um, but anyway, I mean, there's obviously a formula here when it comes to, you know, the Marvel shows and movies. So, of course, there's going to be a big villain and something for her to overcome and endure. But I don't know. I'm just being charmed, I guess, by the little like coming of age story that they got going too. So I'm at this point, I think I'm guessing that, you know, Kamran and this woman are going to probably be trying to guide um, Kamala in a certain direction. It turns out that damage control has been trying to help her all along and just trying to help her with her powers. And it turns out, you know, we were made to believe that damage control is the bad throughout this. And it turns out to be whoever this mysterious woman is. I mean, maybe that's the case. I mean, it's definitely a red flag that Kamran, am I saying his name right? Uh, wasn't upfront so. right away with, you know, with mm -hmm. Kamala. But like I said before, the one thing that I'm really enjoying about the show is not necessarily knowing where the fuck it's going right now. I mean, mm -hmm. them 
changing and updating her powers in a way has kind of facilitated that experience for me. And the fact that we know it doesn't seem like they're going the inhuman route just makes the story more exciting. I mean, who knows? Maybe she's a mutant. <laughs> I'm just throwing everything against the wall right now. <laughs> but if you think about it, since they're saying that, like, you know, the band's somehow tapped into a power that's already there, I mean, maybe it is something genetic. No, I definitely think it's something that exists in all of her mother's side of the family. Like, I definitely think it's something that's passed down. I remember reading the comic books at first and kind of wishing she was a mutant instead of an inhuman. Just because uh, I'm not a big Inhuman fan. Obviously, you know that if you listen to the show. Uh, but unfortunately, at the time when Kamala made her debut in the comics, Marvel seemed to be making an effort to kind of like put the X-Men and all the mutant books like in a corner since they didn't have like the rights cinematically, you know, for those mm-hmm. characters. Um, so they did a lot to try to boost the Inhumans, um, which... I mean, obviously didn't go the way they wanted. But I mean, with the reintroduction of Black Bolt in, you know, Multiverse of Madness, who knows? I mean, maybe that does end up coming into play for, you know, Miss Marvel. I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. But anyway, go ahead and join us next week as we break down episode three of Miss Marvel. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. This past week in gaming was a big one with what would normally be E3 weekend getting filled in by the Summer of Gaming events. And today I'm going to talk some of the big games that I was impressed by, but before that, we got invited by AMC Games and Fictorama to try out their newest game, The Fabulous Fear Machine, that you can try right now on Steam yourself. This title is a narrative-driven strategy game that's super stylized, which I actually enjoyed quite a bit, you know, how the visuals kind of worked with the game, and also how they looked on the like card elements part of the game as well. The goal of the game is to use fear to spread your own influence, and it kind of runs in a similar fashion to the infection spreading game Plague Inc. Um, But I would say this one brings a lot more options to the table with a competitive factor when you have to go up against others attempting to spread their message throughout the story of the game. I'm not sure if this game will ever have some multiplayer support for it, but I could see a lot of value going up against others trying to spread their own message, or even a big group battle across the nation as each player has to sabotage one another while also spreading fear. I think that would be a pretty cool aspect in the future. But for now, I do recommend you try this one out yourself. It's available as a demo on Steam right now and has a planned release for the full game sometime this summer. Now on to all the big shows that we happened this past week. On Twitch, we were able to live react to the Summer Games Fest, the Future Game Show, and the Xbox Showcase, which you can still see our live reactions right now on Twitch if you like. Amongst those shows, indie games really were the big stars here this year, and horror games in particular definitely shined throughout. I mean, some of these games like Ill, which didn't even really show off gameplay, but gave you this very dark sense of a game really caught my interest this year. I definitely think, you know, there's studios working on some very large titles right now, so there wasn't too much to show off, 
but well, you did get plenty of new experiences that I definitely think still make you know having services like Game Pass and your PSN still worth having. Plus, there was plenty of free demos to try out there, like uh, Metal Hellsinger had a great demo that we tried out live on stream as well. But unfortunately, one of the conferences I wasn't able to watch live with you guys was the Capcom showcase, which showed off the big new updates coming to Resident Evil, which you know was a game that I absolutely love. The crew working on Resident Evil had lots to show off this year with announcements for DLC coming to Village and the official remake of Resident Evil 4. With Village, we got to see footage of the story DLC, Shadows of Rose, that will feature our favorite gross test tube baby Rose, the child we save in the end of Village. Rose is all grown up now and seems to be tortured by the gifts she was born with and is looking for a way to kind of remove her powers as she views them as a curse, which kind of leads her down this journey into her own consciousness, I believe at the least it's her consciousness, which was also described by the game creators as an active world trying to kill the player, amongst, of course, other monsters, which I thought was a pretty cool change of pace to what we got in the previous Resident Evil games, and will most likely add to her use of, you know, these new powers that we haven't even gotten to see yet. Besides the story DLC, there will be new Mercenaries content allowing you to play as villains Heisenberg, Lady D, and you'll also be able to play as Chris, which in my opinion, is all badass. I mean, getting to see gameplay of Lady D towering over everyone was pretty awesome. Getting to see from her height and use her abilities, I think that's pretty fucking cool that they've put them into mercenaries mode, which I think is a very underrated, you know, experience that they put into this game. And I'll be happy to get back into it live when stream for you guys. Resident Evil Village is also getting some new perspectives as the entire game will be playable in third person, though I think they will still have a hard locked camera so you can't see the main character Ethan Winter's face. Another perspective you'll get is if you try the game out in VR. That's right, you'll be able to get up and close with your favorite Resident Evil baddies. That's all going to be available October 28th as part of the Winter's Package. A little bit after that, they showed off you know, their reimagining of Resident Evil 4. We got a short glimpse of the first cabin you get to walk to in the game, in which it looked kind of like it was in a whole entirely new atmosphere, as in the past game, it was practically midday when you actually come across this cabin. You know, the lighting was was completely dark it was nighttime but the game developers made sure to say that they're trying to capture that same feel of being alone throughout this experience and trying to survive against you know this crazy village and castle graphically it looks on par with the most recent games and i look forward to seeing more before its release march 24th 2023 to also list off some of the games I was impressed by, again, we got more of a look of Callisto Protocol. I definitely think you guys should check out this game and you know, check out the footage for this because it looks perfect. It looks like the perfect successor to uh, Dead Space, which is a game that I absolutely love. And also another one to keep an eye on would be Nightingale, the open world survival game that you'll be able to play with your friends. Uh, definitely caught my interest a little bit more this time around seeing gameplay from it, while the earlier trailers just didn't do too much for me. But seeing this now in action, I can tell that it's a very very unique world with an interesting card system that will change your gameplay throughout and make the experience unique every time with your friends. But I could go on and on about all the different games I was into, like The Last Faith, um, Ill I mentioned earlier, Midnight Fight Express, which has a great demo, definitely check that out, it's for free right now 
on Steam. Um, there's a couple Japanese games, Endless Zone Zero, um, Honkai uh, Star Rail, which are from the uh, Genshin Impact team. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge looks fucking fantastic. And the Xbox Showcase started off with footage from Redfall that looks amazing. That game looks like an upgrade of everything that Arcane has worked on in the last few years. But all right, let's talk about the big one that everyone couldn't shut up about. Starfield, of course. The game that, you know, got delayed this year and, and that made everyone think that Xbox was going to, you know, fail because it wasn't going to come out this year. My initial reactions were, of course, of excitement. I'm a big fan of the Bethesda formula of games. I enjoyed, you know, the hard locked camera and shit like that. That's all, you know, true to form with Bethesda games. But at the end of the day, I did say there asking a lot of questions like a lot of you guys did after the show. The biggest concern amongst those online seemed to be the reveal of 1000 Planets, which even while live reacting, I stated most of those have to be, you know, barren planets. Todd Howard has gone forward to explain more in recent um, interviews about how procedural generation will be a part of making the 100 solar systems come to life. While quest lines will feature more of the detailed handmade planets with cities and the hustle and bustle we've come to know from Bethesda RPGs, the procedural planets outside of quest lines are there simply to, you know, add this kind of like feel of exploration in their space game. To give an example of what that probably means, it's most likely going to be if you took the planets of Outer Worlds and their stories and then just added the ability to do No Man's Sky shit on other planets around you that were procedurally generated. Which honestly makes a ton of sense as to how this game will probably feel. I mean, Todd also touted that the game will have a 20% longer main quest line as they try to make this one of the biggest yet. Which makes you question if they're going for more quantity than quality, but as long as those main storylines and the quest lines are there and actually feel important and feel good as a game, then all this you know discourse online about it won't matter. You know, as long as they really put in the effort to those quest lines. On the other hand, this game has a ton of potential because one of the main things I'm most excited about is the future of modding inside a game like this. Todd Howard has already confirmed that this game will have full mod support just like we've gotten in Fallout and in you know, Skyrim. I mean, just imagine a team of monitors, you know, coming together, creating an entire system of planets with full detailed cities. I mean, hell, someone could even just recreate Night City and put it on a random planet. That, you know, that prospect, the, you know, the scale of what modders have been doing with games lately, you know, when I look at like some of the like full blown new game experiences you can get in like Fallout that just came out and you know, whole new worlds that you can play on in Skyrim. It's insane what modders are capable of. And when you put them in a game with a thousand procedurally generated planets and you, you know, you give them the space to build their own worlds and stuff like that, I think that would, you know, bring a, such a longevity to this experience. I'm so excited for the future of modding within this game. That's what I'm always coming back to with Bethesda games in general. I mod the shit out of Skyrim on a yearly basis. I, I pretty much strip the game down and redo it. And I'm like addicted to modding my game. <laughs> Though with the grand scale of this game, I'm most likely gonna need some more storage space on my PC to support any of that. During all these interviews that Todd Howard was doing, he also dropped a little bit more details on the future of Bethesda Studios next titles. Elder Scrolls 6 he claimed is still in pre-production which means it's not going to be coming out for a while, a long while. 
but that will also be followed up with Fallout 5, so you can expect those two games in the next 20 years, I suppose. But the most interesting tidbit he dropped in there was one sentence on possibly working with other developers like in the past, which would immediately catch the eye of anyone who's played Fallout New Vegas that was originally developed by Obsidian, known for their most recent game like Outer Worlds. So was that kind of like a slight hint at New Vegas 2? Who knows? At least it seems like someone's definitely talking about it over there at Xbox. But with that said, let me know what you guys thought of all the showcases and all the news that we got from this past week. I want to know what games that you guys want to play, so let us know on social media. That's at AmazingNerdShow on your favorite social media platform. And if you're interested in what's going on with the streaming side of The Amazing Nerd Show, make sure you follow at AmazingNerdLive, where I post all the main updates for the show. We go live every single Thursday through Sunday on Twitch, so definitely follow us there on Twitch so you can catch our gameplay and some of our in-depth game talks. I definitely appreciate all that stopped by this past weekend to talk games with me while we were live reacting to everything as well. And I'm excited to continue playing games with you guys as time goes on. But all right, let's keep the show moving and let's talk some wrestling. Well, Christian, this week we don't have tons of time to talk wrestling, uh, so we're not going to do our usual AEW Dynamite recap. Uh, instead, we thought we'd go ahead and dive into some of these huge news stories that uh, broke all within this past week. I mean, honestly, it feels like a year's worth of stories in just like, you know, the last couple of days. No, it's insane. But anyway, to start things off, apparently Vince McMahon is being investigated by WWE's board for allegedly paying a secret $3 million to a former employee who allegedly he had an affair with. Uh, this is coming from the Wall Street Journal. I guess this paralegal was hired sometime in 2019 and does have an NDA, so we won't be hearing from her anytime soon. In the article, it states that a friend of the employee reached out to the board in a number of different emails. Uh, the first email said that McMahon doubled the woman's salary after the relationship began and then gave her like a toy to John Laurinaitis, allegedly. Gross. Um, <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> But somehow unsurprised. In the email, the woman wrote, my friend was so scared, so she quit after Vince McMahon and lawyer Jeremy McDivitt paid her millions of dollars to shut up. So these emails in turn triggered an investigation by the board, um, especially when it comes to where exactly the source of the money came from. Like, is it company's money? Uh McMahon's lawyer, Jeremy McDivitt, uh, wrote a letter, uh, paper denying the accusation, saying that WWE did not pay any monies to the former employee uh, when she left the company and that the money came from McMahon himself. The board has since received a copy of the non-disclosure agreement uh, from McMahon's lawyers. So as of this past weekend, an independent investigation is taking place. But needless to say, if it is proven that McMahon did use company money to pay this woman, uh, which it doesn't seem likely from different reports coming out. I mean, McMahon could be in big trouble if it is proven that he used WWE's money to pay off this woman, or even if he boosted her salary underneath false pretenses. But like I said before, I mean, there's been 
a long history of different stories and rumors surrounding McMahon when it comes to practices like this. Allegedly, this investigation has already uncovered multiple different kind of NDAs like this. Okay. Which is, like you said, gross. It does feel like McMahon has been kind of like the Teflon Don in the past and nothing really sticks to him. We'll see if that's the case here. But with CEOs of much bigger companies being forced to step down for even smaller accusations, it does feel like this is the biggest threat to Vince McMahon since, you know, the steroid trial in the 90s. So at this point, we just got to kind of sit back and wait to see exactly how all this unfolds. I know, right? I mean, could this be the catalyst to them actually selling WWE? I mean, a lot of people have been speculating for a couple of years now that that's kind of what Khan's job has been in WWE is getting their bottom line Mm -hmm. to look good for potential buyers. But I could definitely see this speeding things along, right? Exactly. Um, A lot of people are also pointing out that, you know, Stephanie McMahon, who mysteriously stepped down just a month or so ago... Uh, could have possibly been stepping down for this reason, since at that point, the board did know about these accusations. Mm. But at this point, I mean, none of that's been confirmed. Also, something that's been weird lately is there seems to be some kind of hit job coming from the inside of WWE uh, on like Stephanie McMahon press wise, Hmm. like someone's leaking information to the press about her job performance, stating that she really wasn't fulfilling her duties um, as brand officer. So which just seems strange. It had a lot of people wondering like where the source of this information was coming from and what their motives exactly were. You know, were they just trying to get rid of Stephanie altogether um, or was it coming from a different place? At this point, no one really knows the motives. We all know the motives. It's Khan trying to take over. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's what the internet would have you believe. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, pretty fucking crazy story. But that's not the only story that we got this week. Um, oh, no. <laughs> as the McMahon story was coming out, there was another story floating around saying that Sasha Banks could have possibly been released. Uh, at this point, no one's confirmed that. Um, there was a report last week that her lawyer was working on a release with WWE, I guess. As we're recording, Sasha did put out an Instagram post, put out a message saying, see, that's why I don't go on Twitter, just making stuff up for no reason weekly. So I don't know if this was her way of debunking that rumor. Um, it does seem that way, but... Who knows? I mean, I couldn't imagine WWE wanting to lose Sasha Banks. I mean, I, I know she's had her issues with the company. They've gone back and forth. But you know every single wrestling company outside of WWE are going to send her a contract like as soon as they possibly can. Well, and what concerned me is when the rumor came out that her lawyer was working on her release. If mm-hmm. she does have quite a bit left on her contract... They might have to give up a lot to get that release granted. Um, I know when Brock Lesnar originally uh, left the company while his contract was still not up back in the early 2000s, he basically had to sign something saying that he would not work for another wrestling company for I forgot how many years. Now, eventually he did go and work in New Japan. And then like I think WWE actually took him to court and the court actually sided with Lesnar. Um, but they're, they play hardball 
when it comes to these contracts. So I could see Sasha choosing just to sit out the rest of her contract, depending mm-hmm. on how much longer she has. Now, WWE can't tack on the time that she's not working to the end of her contract since they are not paying her right now. But if we're talking about years, I could see this eventually going to court. Um, if, you know, Sasha and her lawyer can't work something out with the company, if, you know, WWE is that, you know, stubborn, you know, and just decides to shelf her um, out of spite. And they can be spiteful, so. <laughs> yes, yes, they can. <laughs> uh, also, we have the Jeff Hardy situation, which is just, you know, incredibly sad. Yes. Um, he got a DUI this past week. Um, a lot of people were worried about his well-being after seeing his performance in the last couple matches he mm-hmm. had in AEW. Um, I think a lot of people just kind of assumed it was more, you know, health reasons and he was just super banged up. But I mean, and, you know, maybe that's the case, but, you know, he definitely didn't feel like himself. Um But earlier this week, he was pulled over after swerving and driving extremely slow. Um, I don't know if he was on the highway or if he was going down the street, but he did end up getting booked for a DUI um, after testing. I think it was like three times over the limit, the legal limit. So, I mean, he was pretty messed up. And he admitted to, you know, doing shots of fireball before, you know, getting into his car. So, um it's just a sad story, and hopefully, you know, he ends up getting the help he needs. Uh, AEW did send out a press release um, basically saying that Jeff Hardy is suspended um, right now without pay, um, and that they did offer him help um, if he needs it, which it does sound like from the press release that he is open to that at least. But then in the statement, Tony Khan went on to say that only after Hardy had completed treatment and had remained sober for a period of time would he be allowed back into the company. But hopefully he makes that choice to get help and he can get his life back on track. Yes, I mean, that's... I feel like any Jeff Hardy fan wants him to you know succeed. You want yeah. want to see him get some help here. So I mean, regardless of him getting back in the ring at this exactly. point, you know. I know we said we weren't going to go ahead and recap uh, AEW Dynamite this week, but we did get an updated card for Forbidden Door. Uh, Christian, do you have that handy, my friend? Yes. So, so far on the card is John Moxley versus Hiroshi Tanahashi for the interim AEW World Championship. We also got Thunder Rosa versus Tony Storm for the AEW Women's Championship, which we were originally thinking there wouldn't be any women's matches on the show. So that's yeah. good to see. Yeah, I'm happy that they got at least a women's match on the show. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that they couldn't get like, uh, you know, a wrestler from stardom over, yes. you know, to compete in the match, you know, so at least they would stay, stay on theme. But it is what it is. I, I It's going to be a great match between Storm and uh, Thunder Rosa. Uh, we also have Will Ospreay going up against Orange Cassidy for the IWGP US Championship. Yeah, which I did not see coming at all. Uh, and I mean, a lot of that had to do with Orange Cassidy being hurt and on, you know, the injury list. But apparently he's healed up. Uh, I think it's going to make for a fun match. I know a lot of people are complaining about it. But, I mean, you're not going to get all your dream matches on this card because I think they're seeing this as just the first in a series of, like, events like this. So, I mean, they've got to save something, you know, for later on down the line. So I I feel like this is a fine match, and I think it's going to actually end up stealing the show. And in many ways, this should be someone's dream match. I mean, these two wrestlers have such great styles to see go up against one another. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I actually really, I mean, 
we're not going to talk too much about the show, but the Dax and Osprey match was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, a huge palate cleanser compared to what we got on Friday uh, between uh, the Empire, the United... What is it? The United Empire? I forget what they call it. I think themselves. it's United Empire. It was the United Empire going up against FTR and Trent Barretta. Um The United Empire lost, and I have no idea why. <laughs> It was a good match, but I was like, this is how you're going to introduce them to yeah, your exactly. audience. So, uh, I don't know. I was a little disappointed with that. It kind of taken it back, but they kind of got things back on track, you know, with this match. Uh, Dax is like becoming like wrestler of the year at this point. I mean, he has to be a fucking candidate. Yes, it's crazy. Right? Like the amount of singles matches he's getting in, and even if he's not winning them all, he's still coming out a star every no, single time. It, absolutely. I mean, they're all in my eye five star matches. Yes. So, um, and he's the common factor in all of them. So, I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, but anyway, what else did we have announced, Christian? Uh, we also still have the tournament going on for the All Atlantic Championship. So Pack and Miro are currently in, but there are still two more slots to be determined. Uh, one is definitely going to be uh, Malachi Black, and then the other one yes. is between two opponents from New Japan. Yeah, unfortunately, it came out this week that you know because of New Japan's relationship, I believe with AAA, that any like CMLL wrestlers are not going to be allowed to wrestle on the card uh so that includes andrade and the lucha brothers i don't know if sammy's included in that apparently not because he was also announced for a match yeah. so i mean because i think he's carrying around one of their titles right now with ty right he's got their intergender title is but i think that's a triple a which triple a can work with new japan it's oh, really confusing okay Okay, maybe I've got everything backwards. So no, no, don't quote me, me on any of this. <laughs> it's weird the relationships. Like they all kind of work together in their own ways, mm. but they can't do certain things. It's yeah. it's very dumb. Well, a lot of it sounds like pettiness uh -huh. on one of the company's parts, um, <laughs> just holding old grudges, which is unfortunate. So what that does mean is we've got a big spoiler when it comes to the you know Malachi Black and you know Penta match. <laughs> <laughs> obviously black is going over um new japan is having like a couple matches to name their contender for the all-atlantic belt um i don't have that in front of me i do oh look at that go christian <laughs> um to, uh ishii's gonna go up against uh yoshinabu and then um hanma is going up against clark connors so they're gonna have a pre-qualifier round for our pre-qualifiers so it seems like they're having to do more to get into this tournament than the AEW wrestlers do yeah <laughs> whatever sure uh i'm guessing ishii's winning though yeah like out of all those four names that's the one yeah. that stands out the most and he's so. got the history working with the company in the past yeah. so i mean just imagine a moment where we get ishii standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with miro Absolutely. that's gonna be, be amazing. amazing right mm -hmm. <laughs> and then is as it? you mentioned just a moment ago um chris jericho is going to be teaming up with Suzuki and Sammy Guevara going up against Wheeler Yuta, Shooter, and Eddie Kingston are all going to be going up against one another. I was really surprised on what a big pop Shooter got, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I can't think of his actual name right now, so I apologize. But I mean, it just shows you how educated at least the live audience is for AEW. <laughs> While this match is definitely thrown together, I'm not surprised by it. I'm expecting that we'll get more like multi-man tag team matches. It is kind of like a New Japan tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a good way of getting like, you know, a lot of wrestlers on the card who, you know, you might not be able to get 
um, otherwise. I don't know how the team up of Suzuki and Jericho is going to work out, but uh... I could see it at the end of the match, them coming to blows. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> like Suzuki taking out Jericho or something. So far, those are the matches that are announced for Forbidden Door, but there will still be a match for Jay White. We just don't know who his opponent's going to be. As Jay White came out this week on the episode, pretty much telling Paige and Cole, neither one of them. Is getting an opportunity. Or getting a title shot, right? Because yes. Jay White, over the weekend, if you don't know, and I'm sure you do if you listen to the show, over the weekend at Dominion, Jay White won the IWGP uh, championship from Okada, which was definitely a surprise to me. Um, I'm hoping that Okada is still somehow factoring in, because I think in everyone's mind, when they initially announced you know, the concept for this pay-per-view... You know, right away, the first wrestler that everyone wanted to see in an AEW ring was Okada. Yeah. And they've brought up his name multiple times at this point. So for them to tease it and not deliver on it would definitely suck. Um, I, I'm not sure where they're going with this title match. Uh, it's It looks like there's going to be some kind of like three-way dance happening between Cole, Hangman, and uh, White. But maybe they throw in Okada and it becomes a four-way uh, I'm not sure. Or maybe Okada, you know, teams up with some of his, you know, chaos stable mates and is in some kind of mixed tag match. Um, it's definitely not how I want to see Okada on this show. Mm -hmm. But as long as we get Okada, I'm going to still be happy. I know the punk injury kind of threw a wrench in a lot of things. So I'm guessing that's why we're getting some reshuffling here and there. Uh, also, too, another match that hasn't been confirmed yet. We did have, after the Dominion card, Zack Sabre Jr. calling out uh, Brian Danielson, um, you know, to settle finally who's the best technical wrestler in the world. Um, by all accounts, Brian Danielson is still injured. Uh, they didn't touch upon, you know, that match possibly happening on Dynamite this past week. So I don't know. It does kind of put that match in doubt a little for me since we're only like a little more than a week away. But hopefully, you know, it's revealed next week that, you know, Brian is ready to work and that match is happening because we still don't have a lot of this card announced. But I mean, that is very much in the vein of how New Japan books their shows, which I do understand to a certain extent. Like, how are you going to book a show a month out when you don't know who your champions are, mm -hmm. you know, or like injury statuses of people? Um, but it does make it a little more frustrating for wrestling fans. <laughs> and I mean, we're more used to, you know, how AEW and WWE have their oh, cards absolutely. planned like three months in advance. So. Which I also understand because you want to know whether or not you want to buy a ticket or not. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, that being said, AEW has already sold out the arena. So, I mean, those tickets have been sold. It's just more of a case of, you know, do you want to buy the pay-per-view? But knowing AEW's fan base, I'm sure that's not going to be a problem. How are you feeling about Tanahashi and uh, Moxley? Um, I like the story. You know, I enjoy that, you know, this is something that Moxley has been actively trying to do, get a match with Tanahashi. So I'm down to see them go at it. I, I was... Just I was really happy that they did a video package about mm. that this week, you know, before they had their like confrontation in the ring. I think that was really important to kind of get the importance of, you know, this match over with the audience. Yeah, because I did forget about those early promos when Moxie was at New Japan, you know, pretty much yelling for Tanahashi, you know. Uh, Khan in an interview did state that it was a match that he was trying to stop from happening um, because he wanted a, an AEW. 
<laughs> Tony's always very honest in these interviews. Yeah, I was about to say, so, at least he's honest, right? Yeah. I don't know if he was joking or whatnot, but I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Because it was a little weird for a while. You remember, we're like, why isn't this happening? Like, because Moxley called them out. It was, it felt like a mm-hmm. year ago now at this point. So it just felt strange. But I mean, it is what it is. At least we're getting the match now. But anyway, Forbidden Door aside, I thought this past week's Dynamite was a great show. Um, it did feel like, you know, AEW kind of like getting back on track after a few, like, you know, kind of shaky shows um at least in my opinion we got just a fantastic ladders match between jurassic express and the young bucks that saw the young bucks actually recapture the titles and and now they're your first two-time tag team champions it just felt like jurassic express's like title run like ran its course and with the young bucks big win we finally got what we've all been waiting for for months which was christian's heel turn (laughs) he got out of the ring and he attacked uh jungle boy as his mom and sister watched on i believe it was actually his birthday uh <laughs> even better yes right the attack ended with a concerto uh christian is just at his best as a heel so i'm glad that we're finally going to get to see heel christian in aw um i really feel like they're going to have a great program and you know this is kind of like finishing school for jungle boy like he got you know christian as his mentor in his corner for you know god for what, what like six seven months at this point yeah. if not longer um and now he gets to work a feud with him and i think jungle boy is going to come out a better performer because of it it's been so long since we've seen you know christian as you know a bad guy i think a lot of people have forgotten just you know how good he is at it. There's a moment where I feel like he was the best heel in the business. I mean, right before he left for TNA, I mean, he was doing some of his best work. Uh, And then, I mean, his TNA run, I mean, you can't sleep on that. I mean, do yourself a favor and go back and revisit some of those matches and some of those segments because, I mean, no one's better than being a scumbag than Christian. And don't I know it. But anyway, that does it for this week. Uh, Make sure to join us next week as we preview the entire card for Forbidden Door. Hopefully we have it by then. Uh, But you got to think, you know, after Dynamite, that, that, that card will be pretty much nailed down. I mean, I can see them maybe announcing a couple matches on Rampage, but hopefully not. But who knows? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised either way. Well, that does it for this week. That's right. And as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. All right, David, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week, we'll be breaking down the finale of Obi-Wan and giving our final review for the series. We'll also be recapping episode three of Miss Marvel. Plus, we'll be previewing AEW's Forbidden Door. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.
I killed them all. They're dead. Every single one of them. And not just the men, but the women and the children, too. They're like animals, and I slaughtered them like animals. 